This is Christy, and we have merchandise. Go to howtolovelitpodcast.com and check out amazing t-shirts, mugs, stickers. If you love great quotes, we have some of our favorites. If you love silliness, check out our mascot, Brain Man. Go to howtolovelitpodcast.com, clip on the shop button, and find something for that person who needs to be reminded that we are fashioned creatures but half made up. Mary Shelley said that. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hi, I'm Christy Shriver, and we're here to discuss books that have changed the world and have changed us. And I'm Gary Shriver, and this is the How to Love Lit podcast. This is our second episode discussing Jonathan Swift and his satirical and fantastical travelogue titled Gulliver's Travels. And last week we focused on Swift's unusual life, the women in his life, his career, uh, and his rise to being a national hero. Uh, we introduced Lemuel Gulliver, the narrator of Gulliver's travels in all four voyages. Uh, Gulliver's a seaman with the nautical jargon to you know, go along with it. Uh, this episode in Voyage 1, he comes to us as a ship surgeon, which is unique to Voyage 1. Um, you know, we believe Gulliver's account not because of the reasonableness of his tale, uh, because the story is ridiculous beyond reason. Uh, <laughs> yes, it is. But because he tells us with such academic accuracy, I mean, he overwhelms us with useless details. He incorporates nautical jargon. Uh, the subtext is that if he knows all these words and speaks graphically, incorporating all these details, of course, this must be true. And uh, we also believe him because he's an eyewitness. And this is a very important idea in this book. Should we trust what Gulliver sees? Uh, he speaks so plainly and so openly, even uh, including details about his bowel movements. Of oh, all yes. Things. He's an honest guy, probably too much honesty. But anyway, just reporting the facts and uh, he believes himself, so why shouldn't we? I mean, it, it doesn't matter that, that it's far-fetched to believe that he's been shipwrecked on a land where the tallest inhabitants are six inches tall, and he can't help what he saw. He's just the eyewitness. So he is. And Swift begins a satirical attack on man's pettiness and our social ambitions. He mocks how we see the world, how we judge what is important in this world, and he condemns us more and more viciously as we go through the voyages. But Voyage 1, for the most part, it's lighthearted. It's designed to be playful. Uh, that might be why it's the one that most people know. <laughs> but in all the voyages, most vividly in this one, 
He mocks our ability to inflate our importance. Uh, we lose sight of the fact that we're just little specks in this universe. And in the grand scheme of things, we really are of equal value. But we see ourselves as big when we actually are ignorant as we are arrogant. We are small, even the most important of us, but we don't know it. We can't see. In Voyage 1, and actually in Voyage 2 as well, by the way, Swift criticizes English society, specifically the English society of his day. That's his world. When we get to Voyage 3 and 4, though, he will focus more on humans at the individual level, the pride inherent in our very nature itself, and it will get harsher and harsher. The last voyage, to be honest, is kind of dark. But we highlighted a quote last week from Swift, and I think, at least for me, all of his work really centers around a few ideas, this being one of them, and it's this idea that pride enables us to deceive ourselves in so many ways. And once we deceive ourselves, we proceed to, with you know, fine fashion and much diligence, deceive everyone else. We deceive ourselves into thinking we're bigger and more important than we are. We deceive ourselves into thinking we're rational and we make rational decisions when we aren't and we don't. And we deceive ourselves into thinking we're good people when in fact we're not. And his argument works uh, two ways, really, from the outside in, and he criticizes society. Uh, then he criticizes the heart from the inside out as individuals. And what we don't understand when we start Voyage 1, but where we are eventually going to go by the end of the book, is that Gulliver is delusional. And if we take his word, or really his judgment of things at face value, we too are Gulliver or gullible <laughs> ourselves. Gulliver's first name is Lemuel. Now that's a biblical name. And in the and it's another name for King Solomon. King Solomon in the Old Testament of the book of First Kings in, in the Bible is the wisest man on planet Earth. Uh, so there you go. Lemuel Gulliver is wordplay. And there is a lot of wordplay in this book. We'll try to point out some of the bigger ones as we go along. But in this case, his gullibility, his gullerability. No, no. That's not going to catch on, <laughs> by know. the way. Lies. And even our gullibility lies in our belief that we are so wise. We are reasonable. We're governed by judgment. We make decisions based on the evidence. When, in fact, we often make poor judgments, irrational ones. Uh, about things that we see, and we delusionally and passionately convinced that we are governed by reason, we're on the moral high ground, while all the time blindly competing, sometimes viscerally, in a world that is vying for status and personal gain. So are you talking about today, or are you talking about (laughs) Jonathan Swift's time? Jonathan Swift's time, of course. Interesting. (laughs) Well, that does seem a little harsh, and I see why he's called a cynical person, but but let's follow his argument. Voyage 1, Gulliver arrives in Lilliput, as we introduced last week. He's discovered, tied up, and then introduced to a society that is very much a parody of British society of the day. And that's, of course, the picture that we have on our icon. It's on our webpage. It's the picture on all the cover of all the children's books. It's the picture in the movies. It's funny and shows us that 
on one level, at least the superficial level, the story can be enjoyed by children who have no way or even any interest in picking up on the satire or the general allegories embedded in the text. They don't care uh, that he's mocking the English or that he's mocking any of us at all. Well, I'd like to add that we're we're not going to deep dive into British history, much to everybody's disappointment. <laughs> but we just are going to hit the high point. Uh, but like you said, Swift, for his own safety, was often vague enough to keep his contemporaries as well as historians arguing since the 1720s over some of the people he was insulting. Uh, there are a couple of names that people agree about. Flimnap is the first example that comes to mind. He's supposed to be Robert Walpole, the first British prime minister. But who is Skyrish Bologram or even the Queen of Lilliput? You know, those are not agreed upon um, assumptions. And Lilliput does not have a parliament like Great Britain does. And there are other differences between Lilliput and England, uh, enough to keep Swift away from, you know, accusations of treason, which is dangerous in that time period. It's possible the Lilliputian queen is Queen Anne, but maybe she isn't. And, you know, really, it doesn't matter. It's not necessary to have all the background knowledge to enjoy the digs at the politicians. Uh, Politicians today are still vying for the colored threads and doing somersaults on tight ropes and you know, nothing about our behaviors has really fundamentally changed, and, and that's the fun. Uh, how could Swift possibly so accurately nail how people behave when status and power are on the line? Well, and once we understand that these are general allegories, then we can identify with the problems that he's illustrating. And when we understand the problems, then that's when it gets fun. And we're not going to do this for you because we don't want to get in trouble either. Uh, But it's your job to apply these same ideas to your culture or to our culture. These are also our politicians, and this is our community. And the better you can make these associations, the bigger a laugh you get, and the more you understand and identify with the general ridiculousness of the whole thing. <laughs> <laughs> True, but before we do, uh, more wordplay on Swift's part. I guess we'll call it that. It's not a pun. It's our starting day, November 5th. Oh, yeah? So what's interesting about November the 5th? That's very interesting. It's Guy (laughs) Fawkes Day. That isn't something that we celebrate in the U.S., but it's bonfire night in Great Britain, and it's fun and festive, and the actual event predates Swift. And on November 5th, 1605, a group of radical Catholics tried to assassinate King James I by blowing up the House of Lords. And The plot went awry, obviously, and uh, Guy Fawkes, who wasn't even in charge of the whole operation, was tried and convicted and executed. And November 5th became a holiday the following January. And uh, the celebrations really evolved in its meaning over the years, but it still involves hoaxes, masks, bonfires, and last but not least, children going around asking for a penny for the guy. Well, there you go. You found a pun. (laughs) (laughs) It is. Uh, It it also seems to be a hint about what to expect out of Swift. His book addresses the violence that was created by factions and retaliation. You know, except Swift is not berating us like an angry school teacher. And his book, for the most part, is playful. And it's the spirit of, of this holiday, perhaps. And the message is a conspiracy. He does want to subvert our thinking. But Gulliver, our messenger, is just a goofy hoax. (laughs) 
Yeah, he is. And it's, that's interesting. You know, the structure of the entire book communicates that very idea you kind of just hinted at. Gulliver goes from land to land. He's going to go from society to society. And Swift is interested in understanding what is the value of our society. He puts Gulliver in different social positions in these very different societies. And he explores the social relationships from these different angles. But today we're going to tackle this first one. Gulliver is large and the people are small. He can see the panoramic view for miles, but he cannot see the minutiae. And that needs to be taken both literally and metaphorically. But the reverse is also true. The people can only see the minutiae and they can't see the big picture or the panoramic. What is first obvious is that Gulliver if he wanted to, could overwhelm this little society almost immediately, but he doesn't want to. In fact, weirdly, what he wants to do is climb the social ladder. And Swift is interested in this. Why are we so compelled to climb that social ladder? And why is social order so problematic? Why are our social hierarchies so intrinsically corrupt to the point that it causes war and death? Why are we so bent upon violence biologically, as Swift often points out in many of his works? Why do all living things, even animals, play at war? Well, let me point out just quickly um, that there were wars going on in England. Well, you know, honestly, all over Europe for the entirety of Swift's life. And he felt these. That was the essence that he lived in. Uh, He fled Ireland for one, but the Glorious Revolution, uh, although called Glorious because it was supposedly caused a little bloodshed in general, it still caused the deaths of over 20,000 in Ireland, you know, never mind the starvation of many more. And Swift was really morally opposed to war. Oh, that comes out in Voyage 1 later on very explicitly. But even here in the beginning, we can see this. Gulliver doesn't go to war with these people. He doesn't start a fight with them. In chapter one, Gulliver allows himself to be poked and prodded and eventually carted into town. He never even resists. You know, let me let me add, this would seem very unusual to the first readers of this novel. It seems unusual to me. Well, no British army or British soldier, for that matter, would behave like Gulliver in a similar situation. No English teacher would either, but it's all very ridiculous. <laughs> you know, the Lilliputians later drug his liquor. They tickle his nose. No fewer than 10,000 of them at various times mount his body. And of course... Let's not overlook his bowel movement problem that he's so fond of telling us. How does he handle his poop? As I told you, there's something for all ages in this book. (laughs) When we meet the king of Lilliput, he's described as being taller by almost the breadth of my nail than any of the court. His features are strong and masculine. He has an Austrian lip and arched nose. His complex motions are graceful and majestic. He's 28 years old. He wears a gold helmet with jewels and a plume, and his voice is shrill and articulate. So are we supposed to understand that this is an accurate description of King George? Well, you know, interesting enough, this is Swift being dangerous. Um, King George was known for being ugly, and he was also in his 60s, and in many ways, the Lilliputian emperor is the opposite of King George. So there you go. Uh, make of that what you will, but it seems to me this is pointing out the ways King George does not measure up instead of describing what he looks like. 
Either way, you know, the Lilliputians meticulously search Gulliver and they create this very long and slightly boring to read inventory. Gulliver is obsessed with measurements. He's also obsessed with keeping things that measure and enable him to see. He keeps his watch, a magnifying glass, or he calls it a pocket perspective. He keeps his glasses in the secret pocket. Gulliver wants to see things, to know things, and he wants to know things precisely. And yet what we're going to see over and over again, he never fully understands what he sees. He records things that happen, but as the story goes along, we as readers can understand things that he cannot. And of course, that's the whole idea behind satire. It's the whole idea behind dramatic irony. We as readers or audiences, we see, we know, but the characters in the book do not. Isn't that a Greek thing? <laughs> Have we discussed that? Yes, yes. it is. Well, you know, uh, chapter three begins the obvious political satire. Uh, Lilliputian society is ruled by an ambitious emperor who calls himself. Oh, a- I'd like to hear you say that. Speak your Lilliputian. Okay. Galbasto Mamorum Evlami Gordio Shefan Mully Aligi, which translates to Most Mighty Emperor of Lilliput, Delight and Terror of the Universe, whose dominions extend 5,000 blustrigs, about 20 miles, okay, to the extremities of the globe, monarch of all monarchs, taller than the sons of men, whose feet press down to the center, and whose head strikes against the sun, at whose nod the princes of the earth shake their knees, pleasant as the spring, comfortable as the summer, fruitful as autumn, dreadful as winter. Uh, <laughs> that's quite a title. Can I go by that title? Oh, no, not if you want anybody to talk to you. Uh, you know, this is, of course, re- utterly ridiculous. The reader knows that this is these are the smallest people on the globe. No one outside of Lilliput really shakes their knees in his presence. And we know he's a little guy, but this is not what the Lilliputians think. And they can't even conceive of anyone being greater. Um, they think their little group is the delight and terror of the universe. So we are to think that Lilliputians are the most pretentious and the most arrogant people conceivable, and especially in light of their true essence. But they can't see outside of themselves, so they truly believe this about themselves and about their king. And, you know, of course, this is swift satirizing how a small island country like Britain sees itself globally, but it's meant to be, you know, kind of extrapolated out. True, and it's so much broader than a country feeling powerful. I mean, I've experienced this exact phenomena many times in many different settings as I can imagine anyone who's moved into a new town or to a new school or to a new workplace environment we've all found shown up and and realized that we were in Lilliput I mean the people there uh, especially people that have never been outside of that particular setting think of their little space as the center of the universe the delight and the terror of the universe to be exact and newcomers will be shunned or snubbed uh, just like they've just walked into Buckingham Palace wearing nothing but bare feet I mean I've been places that to look at from the outside looked very ordinary maybe insignificant but you wouldn't know it by the people inside. And they stand up tall saying, I'm the table leader. I'm your line leader. My classroom is in the east building. Yours is in the lowly south one. 
My office has an outside wall. Yours has an inside wall. I mean, this is just how communities work. They could go, I could go on and on. The longer we're in any particular setting, though, the more things get distorted. And we think and act like this is truly our small little place and it's the center of the universe. And we fight for small things like being line leaders and table leaders and rooms in certain buildings and, and those kinds of things. We act just like these guys. That reminds me of a great line from the musical South Pacific. (laughs) Oh, no. Where one of the characters says, Little Rock, it's a place that thinks it's a big rock. (laughs) (laughs) Not to insult our Arkansas. No, but everybody understands what he's talking about. You know, you get in this mindset. Yeah. Well, true, but but Swift would say, um, even if you are a king or a president or the CEO, still, if you look from the outside with the the eyes of the ancients or, or any outside source, you're still just a speck in time and place in, in a much vaster universe. Uh, but mankind, as this entire book is testimony, is determined to create hierarchy out of our social structures, and we will be ruled by them. And uh, Gulliver, just like anyone, uh, when he comes in as a new kid, wants to climb the hierarchy, even if he is much larger than any other person there. And uh, of course, likewise, the first thing that, that other people want to establish is that they are above you in the hierarchy. This is so deeply embedded in our evolutionary construct that it just pretty much can't be avoided. And the problem, uh, as Swift points out, is not that we have hierarchies. I mean, we all agree that we need to have order in our world. And uh, the problem is that the way these hierarchies are created uh, are so easily corrupted. Um, they always are glaringly unfair to any outside observer. Um, in the case of Lilliput, uh, in order to gain status, you have to entertain his majesty by dancing on a rope. <laughs> Upper mobility is established with a dance on a rope, and whoever jumps the highest without falling succeeds in the office. I mean, huge disconnect between <laughs> merit and that kind right. of stuff. This, of course, is a ridiculous criterion, um, you know, for creating a competent system of government. And this system does not reward competence in anything but rope dancing. Uh, And that, of course, is Swift's whole point. People are jumping and dancing and performing so many acrobatic feats that they fall and sometimes fatally. And, uh, you know, the metaphor is obvious. Dancing for the one in charge is how you get ahead in this world. And walking a tightrope is how you avoid offending. And once you offend, you fall and die to your professional death and die your political death and your social death, you know, whatever uh, hierarchy you're trying to climb. Today, we might say uh, falling off the rope is getting yourself canceled. (laughs) But it could mean fired or without a date to an important social event. Right, and and the applications of rope dancing, you know, they go on and on, as does Swift satire. After talking about rope dancing, he moves on to talk about colored threads. Uh, If you please the king, you get colored threads. These are the prizes. Of course, the threads in Lilliput actually represent literal orders in England, but the metaphor extends to our day. Again, he's mocking the governing class, the ruling class, whoever that is. Those at the top create meaningless rewards or meaningless ways to identify each other uh, for success that actually have 
no real value based on competence or merit or anything else that's a useful skill to society. Instead, we proudly exhibit our silly threads that we've earned by ridiculous or pointless feats created you know, arbitrarily. And if you subject yourself to these acrobatics, no matter how stupid, you will receive your rewards. You'll win your colored threads. And now you can parade around with visible signs demonstrating, maybe if it's just a fancier car with a nice label on the back, that you have moved up that social hierarchy. And this kind of thing drives Switz bananas. Of course, it drives all of us bananas if we're on the receiving end. But when we're living inside these social structures, the colorful threads, whatever they represent to you in your world, are things that are important. We don't see the rope jumping as silly. We see it as essential. Because if you live in Lilliput, if you're a Lilliputian, it is serious. And here we see that the longer Gulliver is in Lilliput, the more he sees and he thinks like a Lilliputian, even if it should make no sense to him. Gulliver's perspective changes over the course of his voyage. Even how he measures himself, how he measures the world, his perspective changes according to the community that he's in. He sees things, he reports things, But here we see he doesn't reflect enough on what he sees. He never asks if what is going on is important or real or if it's just nonsense. Well, you know, as Chapter 3 makes leadership structures look petty, Chapter 4 does the same thing with political structures, um, including, uh, but not only including, the American political system that we're familiar with here. In Lilliput, they have two struggling parties. Say these. (laughs) Tramixan and Slamixan is what I'm going with. Gulliver fondly calls them the high heels and the low heels because it's through the height of their shoes that they really distinguish themselves. And everybody knows the height of your shoes puts you in one group or the other. (laughs) You know, every country has this problem. Um, We just left Brazil, and they even have this problem. Here in the United States, we call our parties the Republicans and Democrats. In other places, they're called the liberals versus conservatives. You know, all these terms can make your blood pressure go up by just mentioning them. And Swift would recognize this animosity. It's identical to his experiences. The the animosity is the same. The issues are contextual. And in Swift's day, the two parties were the Whigs and the Tories. And Swift himself, at one time or another, actually had been a member of both parties during his lifetime. Uh, However, he was an odd member of both, and mostly because he didn't really believe in extremism. And those in power, you know, then as now, can tend to be extreme. And at the time of Gulliver's travels, though, he was a Tory, and not just a nominal Tory. He wrote political propaganda for the party, and Swift was always active politically. The party controlled the government, though, was not the Tories. The Whigs, or the Low Heels, were running things. Uh, Swift, though, even as an advocate for one party, and even though he spoke using extreme language, he didn't advocate extreme policies. And that's an important difference to understand. He wanted the government to be in the middle, the actual middle, not just saying my view is a middle view when it clearly isn't. You know, Swift, if, if we look at how he behaved, switching parties among other things, did a fair amount of rope dancing all of his life. <laughs> yeah, he with did. With mixed success, and I don't know how many threads he got out of it. 
but he was consistently in favor of finding a middleman or a middle ground. For example, he did believe in the Anglican Church, but he did not believe in religious coercion. And, you know, today things are reversed. States are often atheistic, but even secularism coerces people to a secular worldview. He would be against that. The true middle really isn't an easy path. And I'm going to throw in one historical nerd fact right here. Uh, The Whigs and Tories, those are derogatory terms. Whig, by the way, each political party named the other with an insulting name. So Whig has an association with horse thieves and Presbyterians in Scotland. Uh, And Tory is connected to Irish Catholic street gangs. And each party created the other names and insult and names stuck. And, you know, for the record, the Whigs are pro-constitutional monarchy and living the king's powers while the Tories support really some monarchical absolutism at different times. Right. But those, again, are the extreme positions. And and to me, this is all very interesting because although Swift's language, you know, he says crazy things. And you can say these are extreme things to say. It's an extreme critique of people who are extreme and who talk in extremes. And Lily put everything everyone says is so obviously extreme. And yet they're so little. That's what's funny. (laughs) Exactly. You know, in the real world, we don't notice how extreme we can be. I mean, to us, we seem reasonable and moderate. Uh, Swift very much believed in that idea of the golden mean, and mean spelled M-E-A-N, meaning the middle. Uh, He believed that golden middle was the reasonable position, but that's near impossible because social hierarchies really reward extreme behaviors and extreme speech, and we tend to view the world that way. And um, I'm reasonable, and you're extreme. <laughs> it's the other way around, darling. Oh, but no, we've had that discussion many times. We've clearly established. Uh, this problem even predates social media, if you can believe it. So, And the Americans didn't invent it. It's been around for a while. You know, the emotional intensity between the high heels and the low heels really very much parallels what we experience in global politics today. You know, whether it's American, British, or Brazilian, or otherwise, Um, The name-calling, the loaded language, the hyperbolic threats, that life as we know it, you know, it's all very similar. The British newspapers of Swift's day were full of cynical slurs that were designed to discredit their opponents, as were American newspapers in the early days of the founding of the country. They were full of misinformation designed to attack competitors. Back then, they charged each other with godlessness and treason and God forbid someone uncover that you are secretly a Jacobite or a Catholic supporter. And, you know, today this wouldn't scare anyone, uh, but we have our own list of terms or beliefs that politically will get you in trouble. And the Whigs were actually less numerous than the Tories, but what they wanted to do was rig the system so completely that the Tories could never mount a serious bid for power. I mean, does anything sound like something that's happened in different places and times since the 1720s? Well, of course, the animosity in Lilliput was so intense. Members of the different political parties would not even talk to each other, depending on the size of their shoes. <laughs> Let's read how it's described. Lilliputian political parties. Hmm. As to the first, you are to understand that for 70 moons past, there have been two struggling parties in this emperor under the names of Trag McSun and Slam McSun, and from the high heels and the low heels of the shoes by which they distinguish themselves. It is alleged, indeed, that the high heels are most agreeable to our ancient constitution, 
but however this be, his majesty hath determined to make use only of low heels in the administration of the government and all offices in the gift, gift of the crown, as you cannot but observe, and particularly that his majesty's imperial heels are lower at least by a drawer than any of his court. Drawer is a measure about the 14th part of an inch. The animosity between these two parties runs so high that they will either... They will neither eat nor drink nor talk with each other. We compute the transmexans or high heels to exceed us in number, but the power is wholly on our side. See, he's identified with one. We apprehend his imperial highness, the heir to the crown, to have some tendency toward the high heels. At least we can plainly discover that one of his heels is higher than the other, which gives him a hobble in his gait. Now, in the midst of these intestine disquiets, we are threatened with an invasion from the island of Blufiscu, which is the other great empire of the universe. So you can see, with internal politics, you have external politics. And in this case, we have these two countries, Lilliput and Blufiscu. And they're almost identical in ethnicity and in culture in almost every way, but they have this problem of religion. They disagree on how to break an egg. And thousands have died for generations over this issue of how to break an egg. Should the egg be broken on the side or from the top? The sacred text reads that the egg should be broken. And I will quote the, egg, the sacred text of these people, quote, at the convenient end. But all hell has broken out as to how to interpret that phrase. Of course, every Christian should easily see the wordplay here. Breaking of the egg, breaking of the bread. Da, 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 da. <laughs> That's what we argue over, the Catholics and the Protestants. Gary, you are Protestant, but you teach in a Catholic school and you attend Mass every week. You should be very familiar with this argument. What is the breaking of the bread and why is this such an essential and controversial item of Christian faith? Well, you know, Christians of all sects, whether they're Protestant or, or Catholic, believe in the same sacred text, you know, the Holy Bible. All mainstream Christians believe in the divinity of Jesus Christ and pretty much his entire human experience. He incarnated, you know, incarnated through birth through the Virgin Mary. And, uh, you know, that would be Christmas, as we call it. And lived a perfect life at the age of 33, was condemned, nailed to a cross where he died to then resurrect three days later. So you have to wonder, that's an awful lot of things to agree on. What could possibly be the problem? You know, why so much religious violence, especially between Christians? Well, the night before Jesus was crucified, he had a final supper with his 12 disciples. During that dinner, he predicted his death. And when he did, he broke bread. And he told his followers that after he's gone, that they should break bread in his memory. And his exact words were, you know, this is my body. So they broke bread together, they drank wine together, and thus we have the sacrament of communion. And, you know, Christians of every kind revisit the sacrament regularly, you know, some daily, some weekly, some monthly, and it differs from group to group, uh, and, and it's not necessarily controversial. But uh, Catholics, however, believe that the bread literally becomes the body of Christ upon entering the, the body. And Protestants believe Jesus was being metaphorical, and Swift's point in uh, creating the parody with the egg is to illustrate the utter absurdity of the violence between the British and the French. 
that were really masquerading as doctrinal differences worthy of death between Protestants and Catholics. So they were mixing up their religion and their state. These abuses were things he witnessed in Ireland, and he spoke out against it in his pulpit, in his pamphlets, and in his satire. And he's making this deadly feud and power grab look as infantile and petty as possible. I mean, how could the breaking of an egg result in the death of so many? And how much different could the breaking of bread possibly be? Well, Swift has created this scenario in Lilliput, where religion is being militarized to do the exact thing that the emperor of Lilliput had already said he wanted to do or be. He wants to be the supreme emperor of the universe. So in their case, they have this religious argument, but it coincides with a political one, which is what happens in the rest of the book. And how, or at least the voyage, and how Swift finishes the first voyage. But before we get to the war, he does go over a bunch of laws that Gulliver does admire from the Lilliputians. And I like a lot of them myself. I think my favorite is this idea that in Lilliput, fraud is a greater crime than theft. Because, and let me quote Swift, honesty has no fence against superior cunning. That's so true. I agree with that completely. You can lock your door, you can get a security system, and you can protect yourself to some degree from theft. You know, exactly. And, and people do that all over the world, you know, build walls, physical ones. But, you know, how can we protect ourselves against lies, you know, and defamation of character? People lie all the time about people they don't like and uh, about people who are in their way and um, there is nothing to prevent this. In fact, more often than not, there's no punishment for doing it. So the the age of social media has exacerbated this and it, it, because it can be done anonymously in the safety of one's own home. Well, if you're busted in Lilliput in, in a lie, you're put to death. Ooh, those are high stakes. They don't play. Yeah, I, I think a law like that might have changed things, you know, in, that, in the Johnny Depp Amber Heard trial. <laughs> Just to throw that out there. <laughs> Well, it changed a lot of things at Bartlett High School, too. I mean, we have a parade of liars every single day. Uh, I also like the idea that Lilliput incentivizes good behavior and good morals. So you get paid if you go so long without getting tickets or committing crimes. And Lilliput character is more important than competence, although I would suggest that character breeds competence, but Swift doesn't go that far. And Lilliput disbelief in God disqualifies someone to work in a public station because the assumption is if you don't believe you're an accountable, you're accountable personally to anything greater than yourself, how can we assume you're not going to act in your own best interest or be corrupt? Mm. <laughs> well, true. And, and although that's something you would expect uh, a Catholic priest to believe and express, he doesn't make a religious argument to defend the need to believe in God. I mean, he makes a practical one, which is unusual. Uh, there are a lot of fun ideas here. Swift makes ingratitude a capital crime. <laughs> so remember your please and thank yous. And uh, he doesn't believe parents are actually fit to raise children. And his logic for that is that those parents were not thinking about raising children at the time they were conceiving. <laughs> It's all just kind of funny and clever, you know. Well, true. And, and at first pass, Lilliput seems like a nice place to be. And Lilliputians, they're competent and, and they seem reasonable at first. Then we realize they're violent, cruel people. And then we have the war. 
We see man is brutal towards each other, and this brutality is on full display. Gulliver really is basically a weapon of mass destruction, and the emperor of Lilliput will employ it. Gulliver holds up a cable, and he can take down all of the enemy ships from Bluefiscu, and this thrills the emperor, who turns immediately and makes Gulliver a Nardak. That's the highest order in the kingdom, and Gulliver now, as a Nardak, has arrived socially. In less than a year, he has moved all the way up that social ladder in Lilliput. He's the top dog. He's made it. Although, let me open up another parenthesis because there's wordplay here. Nardak, that's wordplay, and it's an anagram for the word canard. <laughs> and canard means a lie. <laughs> I told you, the swift, the swift wordplay is everywhere, and it's him being goofy. But that's not the main point. The main point is Gulliver is the largest person physically, which is now he's the largest, highest rank socially. He has the highest title. And we, of course, are left to wonder why he finds Lilliputian titles so important. And that's Swift's point. Uh, We do. They're a big deal. They're our moment of glory. Well, it is. And he's very happy about his new title for good reason. Um, If we were going to compare his rank with titles in real English society, it would be the same as being made a duke. And he goes on to explain that Flimnap is a clum-glum, which would be the same as a Marquess in the British period structure. And anyone who's watched any British period pieces understands achieving this level of a rank would be very exciting and highly unusual. Well, as a person who's watched many episodes of Bridgerton, I, and I, Abbey. <laughs> I can tell you that uh, when Daphne scores the Duke in plot one, season one, that's a, a very big deal. But in Gulliver's case, the glory, unfortunately is short-lived because right after that the emperor commands gulliver and let me quote gulliver here his majesty desired that i would take some other opportunity of bringing all the rest of the enemy ships into his ports and so unmeasurable is the ambition of princes that he seemed to think of nothing less than reducing the whole empire of Blefuscu into a province and governing it by a viceroy, by destroying the big Indians' exiles and compelling that people to break the smaller end of their eggs, by which he would remain the sole monarch of the whole world. Gulliver, to his credit, disagrees with this approach, and he responds to the king, and he says this, I plainly protested that I would never be an instrument of bringing a free and brave people into slavery. And, of course, uh, Gulliver learns the hard way uh, what all the rest of us already know. If you say no to the man at the top, you will pay for it, and you know, unless a leader is exceptional, many leaders, especially weak leaders, when they're told no, they don't take it well and, and often seek revenge. Uh, they won't forgive and they won't forget. And Swift experiences personally when he offended Queen Anne and she blocked him forever from becoming a bishop in the church. And he resented that. But honestly, it could have been a whole lot worse. Um, history is full of men and women that have lost their lives for saying no and Swift, for his entire life, expressed a a really dogged commitment to liberty, and he was totally opposed to absolutism in every form, and I'd like to quote him on that. He says, I have lived, and by the grace of God will die, an enemy to servitude and slavery of all kinds. 
Uh, he wrote that in a letter dated May 18, 1727. He hated the arbitrary exercise of power that was inherent in social hierarchy. But as Gulliver finds out when he tells the emperor no, no good deed goes unpunished, not even if you're a Nardak. <laughs> <laughs> the open, bold declaration of mine was so opposite to the schemes and politics of his imperial majesty that he could never forgive me. He mentioned it in a very artful manner at council where I was told that some of the wisest appeared at least by their silence to be of my opinion, but others who were my secret enemies could not forbear some expression which by a side when reflected on me. And from this time began an intrigue between his majesty and a junta of ministers maliciously bent against me, which broke out in less than two months and had like to have ended in utter destruction. Of so little weight are the greatest services to princes when put into the balance with the refusal to gratify their passions. Well, you know, it doesn't help that uh, help us cause the two pages later after all that he urinates all over the queen's apartment. <laughs> yeah, that's the peeing section is most students' favorite part of this whole entire book. Uh, it's like we feel some sort of catharsis watching someone pee on someone else's house if, if they're in charge or above us and we don't like them very much. But Garrett, there I did want to ask, is there a consensus? Is, is this a historical allegory? Is this a metaphor for any particular event or person? You know, this is one of those examples where the political al- allegory is, is really kind of general and not specific. And some people argue that this has to do with the Tory party in connection with the War of Hispanic Succession and the Treaty of Utrecht, others think it's about Queen Anne's rage at Swift for his satire and Swift getting back at her for never making a bishop. You know, I'm not sure in this case. Uh, Swift wanted to be obvious or specific. I'm not sure they did. There are instances where the allegory is obvious, but this isn't one of them. And students are right to feel the humor and really not overthink it historically. I I like that idea. And I do want to revisit this idea that Gulliver reports what he sees, but he never understands what he sees, and and perhaps nor do we. Sometimes we just feel it. Gulliver, the longer he's in Lilliput, gets sucked into the way of life there. He never finds petty all the things that we find petty in Lilliputian society. And his perspective gets more and more skewed the longer he's there, to the point that in Chapter 6, he gets more upset about being a accused of being alone with a woman in an improper way than he does with being accused of treason and readers know anatomically this is absolutely (laughs) absurd but Gulliver has lost complete sight of that his way of seeing things has changed so radically he that idea the impossibility of that idea never occurs to him and of course uh, this is absolutely what happens to all of us as well we all get sucked into the social hierarchies in our worlds and no matter how absurd or petty they are uh, we absolutely can't help it our perspectives get skewed things that are so insignificant become so important you have to get it your apple on a tree if you're in elementary school a letter on your jacket if you're in high school or a greek letter on your sweater if you're in college i mean it's all that matters at that point in your life yet if you're to step back and be a gulliver looking from the outside you should be able to see ah that's kind of petty yeah but it's never really petty is it i mean i remember that feeling in college literally praying to god that i would be picked to be a Chi Delta, 
nothing felt more important to me my freshman year. I absolutely knew that if I didn't have letters, I was never getting a date. Oh, true. And you probably would have because this was the social system of where you were living. I mean, we, we can't escape it. We can't even see it. Uh, but let's also not overlook how serious a charge treason was in 17th century society. Uh, today, that word is thrown out all the time and it isn't taken seriously. But we do have our own words that carry that sort of weight, you know. In that culture at that time, there was nothing more serious than an accusation of treason, and Swiss friends were going down fast. I mean, his friend Lord Oxford spent two years in the Tower of London over this, and others such as Bolingbroke, another good friend of his and very important politician, he had to flee to France for his life. What did they do? Their main crime was that they were Tories and King George favored the Whigs, but the accusation was they favored the French, which is the worst thing you could do. So you can see how party politics, international wars, and all of it feeds on each other. The impeachment of Gulliver is very much a satire about the horrible things that were happening to his friends. Well, in Gulliver's case, when he's accused of treason, there are really four charges. Putting out the fire in the Queen's palace by urinating basically doing the right thing, but doing it in an offensive way. Number two, refusing to annihilate the people of Blufiscu. Three, helping to make peace between two countries. And four, and lastly, acting in a friendly manner towards representatives of the enemy nation. It sounds exactly like what his friends were experiencing and and laid it out in a very straightforward way like that makes it obviously unfair. There's no way to see Gulliver as being anything but a good person doing the right thing. And these articles are ridiculous. The language is ridiculous. He says things like, the said law and the said fire kindled in the said apartment. He puts this word said in everything you know, to sound like legalese, the way we use alleged, the alleged fire, and the alleged queen. It makes it sound ridiculous. He's got these adjectives over the top. He acted maliciously, traitorously, devilishly. And the whole thing is designed to to show us that this is a sham. By the time the government gets around to telling Gulliver about his accusations, well, he'd already been convicted by a secret committee. Wow. You know, uh, let me add, this is uh, exactly what happened to Swiss friends and still happens today when political trials are held, not just in this country, but all over the world. The conclusions are predetermined. Uh, No one has a chance to legitimately defend themselves. And Lilliput, like the entire world, practices political theater. Well, just like they use the banner of religion to do things that were mean and self-serving, they use the banner of justice to do the exact same thing. The severity of Lilliputian punishments are harsh. They're not just. They're out of control. The committee discussed setting fire to Gulliver's house at night with 20,000 troops standing by to shoot poisoned arrows into his hands and face and then put a poisonous substance on his clothes to cause death and the utmost torture. They went with the milder punishment, (laughs) by the way. But the milder punishment is to poke his eyes out. That's the compromise. The plan is to blind him, then reduce his rations, slowly starving him to death, cut his flesh from his bones, take it by cartloads, and bury it in distant parts to prevent infection, but leaving the skeleton as a monument for admiration. (laughs) You know, uh, Swift sees 
the punishments in England just exactly as absurd and exaggerated. You know, in England, the offender would be drawn to the gallows. This is the, the death penalty passed on some rebels in this time period. Uh, drawn to the gallows, then you'd be hanged, but not until you were dead. Because before you died, you were to be cut down, your entrails to be taken out and burned all while you were alive. Then his head would be cut off. His body would be divided into four parts and sent across the country for disposal. And, of course, you know, the sentence would end with, and may God have mercy on your soul after all that. (laughs) You know, sometimes the men were castrated alive as well, and their parts were burned before their eyes. And, in fact, really the Lilliputians are more merciful than the English actually were during the reign of George I. Well, and the inability to understand or even see one's own inhumanity to his fellow man is the theme that will go voyage through voyage. In one of Swift's other work, he says this, There are no qualities more incident to the frailty and corruptions of humankind than an indifference and insensibility for other men's suffering. For Jonathan Swift, not Gulliver, but for Jonathan Swift, as a society, we tend to believe that our political views justify our cruelty to others. We believe our political views justify taking liberty and freedom from people who think differently or behave in a way we consider treasonous, however you know, we wanted to find treason at that point in time. You know, I really do like that quote we talked about the last episode in regard to reason, um, especially in light of the fact that Swift is a product of the age of reason. And these aren't the exact words, but to paraphrase Swift, he says that once we choose to discard reason, which we as humans invariably do, the first convert to insanity is ourselves. And having converted ourselves it's easy to convince everyone else of whatever craziness we're espousing. I think that would be great on a T-shirt. The first <laughs> convert to insanity is ourselves. Well, and, and that's why he's accused of misanthropy or of hating people. It's why he actually says, I have ever hated all nations, professions, and communities. I mean, he loves people at an individual level. He's jealous to protect people from the unfairness inherent in a world that's built on self-interest. His point in Lilliput is to show us that we are too small to even see our own self-importance. We don't see it. At any and every opportunity, we pit groups of people against each other because this enables us to climb up our social hierarchies, be it politics, religion, or any other criteria. And Swift argues that pettiness prevails, and it goes up to the highest levels, viciously and self-righteously and extremely. By the end of Voyage 1, Gulliver still doesn't understand this. After escaping with his life, he returns to England as unreflective as when he started. He is able to financially leverage his souvenirs from Bluefiscue, and he sells his miniature cattle for 600 pounds. That's a big chunk of change. Of course, there's nothing wrong with that. That's not the point. There's just no reflection. Gulliver can see no evil. His experiences in Lilliput have not altered his ability to see himself differently or the world differently. He's just simply bragging that he's climbing the social ladder. His descriptions of the condition of his children suggest that they're now well-established in that leisurely class. I mean, his daughter's married, and she's at her needlework, and his son is provided for with an income from an estate. And, And against the advice of others... He prepares to head out again on a second voyage to seek an even greater fortune. See that social 
mm-hmm. up climbing. This time, the in the next trip, he will reflect a little bit. But as he reflects, will he come to the correct conclusions? Gulliver, although a brilliant linguist, and he would tell you, very talented in so many ways, has trouble with wisdom. <laughs> <laughs> he is not the only one. You know, as long as man lives in community, um, Swift will always be relevant. So thanks for listening today. Uh, We hope you enjoyed our discussion of Voyage 1 of Gulliver's Travels. Uh, If you did, consider giving us a five-star rating on your podcast app. Hit subscribe. Text an episode to a friend. If you're a teacher, introduce us to your students. We would love your support in helping us grow. Uh, Also, follow us on all the social medias and howtolovelitpodcast.com. Email us with book recommendations or comments or or your take on the works that we're talking about. If you teach English, visit our website where you can find not only all 47 titles we've discussed, but also listening guides for academic support, both for native speakers as well as English language learners. You can also buy a sticker or a mug or a (laughs) t-shirt. Peace out. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan, crusted chicken, or garlic, butter, shrimp, scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.